This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. It's World Oceans Day, and we're celebrating our blue planet by talking about coral reefs. And I'm just hearing this now, but you'll probably notice my voice is a little bit croaky today. Um, that's because I finally got struck last week by COVID. Um, on the recovery now, I don't recommend it. It was not fun. We delayed the record a few days so that you didn't hear my full snotty self, but this is what you're left with. It's well documented that coral reefs have been undergoing severe bleaching. In 2005, the U.S. lost half of its Caribbean coral reefs in one year due to a major bleaching event. And this past March, the Great Barrier Reef experienced its sixth mass bleaching event on record. Believe it or not, though, there is a silver lining, one shimmery silver lining in all this otherwise crushing news. I'm Talib Vizram, and this is World Changing Ideas, where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. This season, we're looking exclusively at climate change and what's being done to try and save the world. Coral reefs aren't just vital to the environment, but they also provide local communities with a reliable source of food, and that's fish. Lots and lots of fish. Coral restoration is actually part of a larger economic restoration effort, but we'll dive into that later in the show. For now, let's look at what causes coral bleaching and why it might actually not be the worst thing to happen to coastal communities. First, the bleaching is caused by warming temperatures and ocean pollution. And as we know, global warming has increased the frequency of these harmful incidents. When corals are stressed by changes in temperature, light, or nutrients, they expel the algae that lives in their tissues, and this causes them to turn completely white. That microalgae coating is what supplies sea life with a nutritious food source. But despite the coral collapsing, the bleached corals have actually become a source of nutrition for local communities. We didn't see that coming. James Robinson is a research fellow at Lancaster University in the UK. His team has focused on Seychelles because the African island nation was hit with a mass bleaching event in 1998. After the past 25 years, they have a really good understanding of the ecology of the bleaching impact. But they wanted to see how reef ecosystems contribute to people's health. So the first step was really just saying, well, how nutritious are reef fish? And then placing it alongside other foods, sort of like beef and chicken, as a bit of context for what people might be gaining in their diets. They compared two different reef regimes, one that had recovered its coral and one that had been overgrown by seaweed. So how does an environmental disturbance or climate impact affect the nutritional potential of reef fish? So the first thing to do was to look at, well, if your reef is bleached and the habitat changes because the corals are gone, so the seaweed is overgrown in some places in Seychelles, yeah. does that physically changed the nutritional value of an individual fish. And we found that it did, it enriched a couple of minerals, iron and zinc. Robinson said it was most surprising how nutritious the fish from the seaweed-covered corals were. The iron and zinc content were higher in fish from the seaweed overgrowth habitats versus the recovered reefs. So if the fish are now eating nutrient-rich seaweed, humans who eat those fish are also benefiting. So we think that this higher contribution of a new energy source 
that's sufficient to change the nutrients in the entire food web. That discovery could be vital in the Seychelles and similar tropical countries because it could address malnutrition, which leads to stunted growth and anemia, as well as food insecurity. But while this is good news for people who rely on fish-based nutrients, coral bleaching is still reducing biodiversity. For example, piscivores, and hey, get your mind out of the gutter, that means fish eaters, rely on a more diverse source of prey than the seaweed feeders. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated one. I would say it's bad from a a coral reef biodiversity perspective. There's no no doubt about that. But the nutrient-packed fish that are caught for food have increased, which is a boon for the local population. Robinson is cautiously optimistic about the study results. It's not an ideal way of finding a silver lining, but it's still worth celebrating. He urges prudence, though. In my mind, what people should take from this research is that this is another reason to really focus efforts on sustainably managing these fisheries, because a lot of them aren't managed at all. So hopefully this is sort of another great reason, and there are already many great reasons, but it's showing that reefs do play an important role in local food security in the tropics, and they can still do so. Um, We just can't overfish them. When we come back, I'll talk with someone who grew up diving and loving the ocean, but never imagined he'd one day become a coral farmer, right after this quick break. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Sam Teicher is the co-founder of Coral Vita, a company that grows corals to restore our world's dying reefs. In order to accomplish this rather monumental challenge, it uses land-based coral farms. I know I was perplexed too when I heard that phrase, what good is coral on land? But just imagine, instead of walking up to a fish farm or an aquarium, you find tanks on land where they're growing diverse and resilient coral fragments getting them ready to put back into degraded reefs where they can help bring those ecosystems back to life. It sounds better when Taicha describes it. It's a lovely day at the office. You snorkel or you dive down and you sort of tend these coral gardens under the waves. But for a number of reasons, particularly given how big of a crisis we're facing and how rapidly it's accelerating, that just doesn't cut it and it doesn't scale. And so we've seen the ability to grow corals in these land-based farms, which let us integrate methods to accelerate growth rates up to 50 times faster, so months instead of decades for growth, where we can control the conditions that the corals are raised in to optimize resilience against things that are threatening their health, like warming oceans. So we can actually modify those conditions and help the corals better survive. If there's enough land, you can add more and more tanks and potentially supply an entire nation's reefs with corals for restoration. So all these things are coming together, the ability to integrate technology to scale up impact. That's driven us to to do land-based coral farms. It's definitely not what springs to mind when you first think about a coral reef, but we think as far as how the future of restoration for corals needs to and could go, it's going to become more and more heavily reliant on this land-based farming approach. 
how exactly does one regrow coral? So coral is an animal. Uh, it has plants living inside of its tissue that makes rock for its skeleton. It's a pretty interesting, creative, three-for-one creature. And corals can grow by fragmenting. So imagine almost taking a cutting from a tree or a flower that you can graft. So either by taking cuttings from living corals on the reef or after storms or perhaps a fisherman's dropped their anchor, damaged corals, there's these fragments that are floating along the sea floor that if they don't attach, maybe they get buried by sand, they could die. We call those fragments of opportunity. So we collect fragments uh, from the ocean, bring them to the farm on land, where we then are tracking where they came from, what species they are, gathering lots of data information so we can better inform our, our restoration process. But then the corals grow for 6, 12, 24 months in these four foot by eight foot tanks outdoors. So if you cut it up into these tiny little pieces and put those pieces near each other, almost like scar tissue, they'll fuse back into themselves. So we do this process at the farm where we can now grow corals to the size of dinner plates or basketballs that in nature might take decades or centuries, we can now grow them in months and years. And then at the same time, uh, with the land-based system, again, we can control the conditions. So basically, we can give corals the spa treatment, or we can take them to the gym. <laughs> so we can make it just the way they like it, to, to be healthy and to grow fast. Or we can look at what scientists are projecting for, say, future ocean temperatures. That's one of the things that is already threatening coral health. We can raise the temperatures in our tanks and bring them back down. We can raise them in our tanks, bring them back down. We can stress harden the corals so that when we outplant them, they can better survive. There's a lot more to that as well. But basically, after the corals have gone through this growth and acclimation process, we then go back out into the graded reef sites that we've surveyed and identified, and hopefully we've got clients that are paying to restore. There's a few different ways to do it, but by and large, underwater drills, a sort of non-toxic epoxy glue, plug the corals in there, glue dries, coral grows over, and then the reef starts coming back to life. And we'll monitor that over time to see not just how many corals we planted and pat ourselves on the back, but what were the changes in fish life, abundance and diversity? Is it reducing wave energy? Uh, all sorts of other metrics get collected. And, and that is the process of how we actually grow corals and restore reefs. The company set up shop in 2018 and was busy growing coral, negotiating restoration contracts and showing visitors around the farm when they were hit by Hurricane Dorian. It turned out to be the strongest storm in recorded history to hit the Bahamas. On top of the truly heartbreaking devastation across our island in Abaco, we also had a 17-foot storm surge at our coral farm. Uh, so that definitely set us back a little bit. And after doing humanitarian work for the next few months, we reopened the farm in March 2020, just in time for COVID. So that, together with some uh, unfortunate changes in how the Bahamas is, is doing a, a new permitting system, has basically prevented us from collecting too much data the past few years, but we are now really going big at our restoration targets. And so with the 10,000 planting and, and more to come, we're going to have a lot of exciting results to see. Yeah, not, not an ideal set of, of circumstances there. Um, have you planned for future possible cataclysmic events like that now? Uh, are you doing anything to prevent one of those happening again? We built it with Category 5 storms in mind, and actually all of our buildings stood tall despite having 225 mile an hour wind gusts for almost two days. And we actually have gone through hurricanes since then in the Coral Farm of Spine. It was also built at a, almost double the 100-year flood event. So 100-year flood, so strong, should only come once every 100 years. That was about five feet where our farm is located, and uh, we were closer to about nine feet 
uh, at our sort of foundations. 17 feet was slightly higher than that. The farm was not designed to be a submarine. It is a thing that we're going to absolutely have to contend with in the future, and we have definitely made changes to better prepare the corals and, and protect our tanks and whatnot. But it's a reality that really everyone is already facing and is going to have to face, and adaptation is key. So as I mentioned, we did go through Hurricane Isaias after that, and the farm was was totally fine. So hopefully we'll miss the truly apocalyptic storms, but... Yeah. You know, the way things are going, anything is certainly possible and we got to be ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned assisted evolution and this is uh, so key because the reasons why these corals are, are dying or, or bleaching, right, are, are because of higher temperatures, acidification. Can you talk about what some of the dangers are that the climate bring to corals? So corals are sensitive. When we're thinking about tropical hard coral reefs, they only live within the tropics. And from temperature to pH, sunlight, water flow, there's a range of parameters that need to be just right in that Goldilocks zone for corals to survive and thrive. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, not just in the Bahamas, but around the world, is that reefs are in really bad shape already. And this is before climate change is really even getting as bad as we know it, it can and likely will. One of those parameters again is temperature so just like human beings you know our body temperature goes too high we get fever we get sick and it can it can get pretty bad at times so when temperatures get too high corals can experience the thing known as coral bleaching i mentioned before corals an animal that has plants living inside of it that makes rock for its skeleton almost like white blood cells you know sort of trying to identify and attack things within our own body if the temperatures get too hot the coral will often expel the algae that lives inside of it. Now that algae, one is what gives corals its color. And so we sort of see the exposed limestone skeleton. That's why it's called coral bleaching. But that algae through photosynthesis gives its extra energy to the corals to feed it and to help it grow. And so if the temperature is too hot for too long and the algae isn't allowed back in by the coral, the coral basically starves to death. And together with acidification, which is also being driven by climate destabilization, that can either cause the corals to stop being able to calcify, to build that limestone skeleton, something that other sort of shellfish and uh, other organisms of that nature are facing, and also could eventually sort of erode in a way. So this dual threat of warming temperatures and acidification critically threatens coral reef health. And right now, the Great Barrier Reef is going through another mass bleaching event. It's one of several that's happened over the past few years. And again, for listeners, the context is a global mass bleaching event is equivalent of a hundred year flood. It should happen maybe every hundred years. And we've had six or seven since 1998. And if we don't get a grip on rising temperatures and greenhouse gas emissions, we're projected to have a global bleaching event every other year by 2050. Oh, wow. Is bleaching particularly bad around the ground Bahama? Is that, is that why you're there? I mean, you mentioned the storm, but generally are things just a lot worse around, around there? It's one of the things that contributes in the Bahamas, 80% of the coral reefs are dead. In Florida Keys, oh. over 95% are dead. Some of that is climate change, uh, but there's also things like overfishing, pollution, plastic, toxic chemicals, bad coastal development where runoff and sedimentation buries the corals. All of those things have, and in some cases still contribute to corals dying, along with also coral diseases. There's pandemics under the sea as much as there are that we're dealing with right now. So one called stony coral tissue loss disease is ravaging corals in the Bahamas and elsewhere in the Caribbean. But climate change is, is still the biggest threat. 
Like we learned at the top of the episode, reefs provide a lot for their surrounding communities. Beyond the ecological tragedy of reefs dying, that also wreaks havoc on local economies. Reefs sustain the livelihoods of up to a billion people around the world and a quarter of all marine life. And the latest estimates are they generate $2.7 trillion annually through tourism, through coastal protection, through fisheries. So we have to ask ourselves if coral reefs die, heartbreaking for biodiversity loss, but where are people going to go when they can't feed their families and pay the bills? How are our properties going to be protected if those natural seawalls are gone? And there's even medicines on the market uh, today that are fighting cancer and viral infections and arthritis that come from coral reef organisms. So in many ways, the loss of coral reefs is infuriating, but it's also should be really scary for humanity because we depend on these healthy ecosystems so much more than we realize. And climate change is in many ways the biggest threat facing biodiversity and humanity. Coral Vita is not only interested in rebuilding ecosystems, it's also working on restoring local economies. Teicher explained that the company wanted to branch out from the traditional model of funding used by NGOs and other groups because there are a lot of limitations to scaling impact. And so, again, putting aside that personal love for the ocean, $2.7 trillion a year generated through goods and services provided by corals. So what we're looking at uh, is, while using breakthrough science and integrating local communities, creating this mission-driven commercial model to unlock sustainable financing for ecosystem scale restoration. So we have a few core pillars to the business, selling restoration as a service, ecotourism, conservation finance, and sort of digital partnerships and online sales. You can go to Coral Vita's website and you can adopt a coral and sort of give that as a gift for loved ones or whatever it might be. And we also feel that's a valuable storytelling tool because it's easier to talk about climate change by saying, oh, here's this adoption certificate for planting a coral and people don't even know that you could plant a coral, why corals need to be planted. And and it lets us have that conversation in a more, I think, fun and engaging way. Conservation finance, we're seeing blue bonds and biodiversity credits emerging, foreign debt being forgiven in exchange for that money being spent on conservation. And there's even insurance policies being developed by people like Swiss Re and Willis Powers Watson around coral reef restoration because they see that a healthy reef reduces wave energy by 97%. It protects lives, it protects property. So they understand risk. They're going to try and come up with policies to fund that. Ecotourism is that the farms are based on land. So as our coral farms are production facilities, as well as education centers for local communities, there are also these tourism attractions that people can pay to come visit and have a fun, interactive experience. And then restoration as a service. So RAS instead of SAS. And hotels, developers, insurers, governments, cruise lines, corporate sponsors, anyone who depends on or cares about coral reefs can hire Coral Vita to restore those reefs that they depend on. So really taking every opportunity to create the next generation and give that stewardship potential to the communities that we work in so they can benefit from these projects the most and the projects are are going to be that much better. So that's kind of our approach to sort of having this mission-driven commercial model and transforming how we can really scale uh, environmental restoration and conservation. Coral Vita aims to show how this model can and will work across the globe. Taisha says their goal is to see large-scale land-based coral farms in every nation with reefs. Those might draw directly from Coral Vita's own designs or through partnerships with local stakeholders, for example. But Taisha emphasized that's the kind of scale that companies and organizations need to aim for. So... 
that's what's needed. It's doable. We have plenty of money to do it. Often this argument gets thrown around that acting on climate change is too expensive and putting aside that it's not, the cost of inaction is significantly higher from a financial, let alone you know, human and, and biodiversity cost perspective by, by failing to act. So we see our role both physically being able to do the work, but hopefully showing whether other entrepreneurs or community members, policymakers, big financiers, that there's this opportunity where, and this is applicable not just to coral reefs and coral vita, but to mangroves and seagrass meadows and terrestrial ecosystems. If you have a living seawall, if you have a coral reef that is cheaper to restore and protect than building an artificial seawall, and that artificial seawall doesn't really have any auxiliary benefits like biodiversity protection or fisheries or tourism, and it's going to degrade over time versus the self-repairing ecosystem that has all those other benefits that can create good local jobs. Like, why would you not do that? And so our hope is that by showing there's a new way of doing restoration and conservation, um, again, not a knock on traditional sort of philanthropy and NGOs and the like, but it's it's not moving as quickly as and as, as sort of impactfully as we need it to be in many cases. And so this idea that the world we live in is one that's rooted often in economics. And so if this restoration economy really can be kickstarted and scaled, it can do a huge service to the planet, to people, uh, by protecting these ecosystems that in turn sustain us all. And then hopefully going back to the education piece will make people realize, oh, maybe we should protect these ecosystems to begin with. So we hope that we can play that role in helping drive that type of new development forward. Ultimately, my job shouldn't exist. Uh, and I'll be the first one to say that coral restoration is not a silver bullet. It's unfortunately incredibly essential and it will continue to be, but we need to stop killing coral reefs. We need to solve for climate change. We need to solve for habitat destruction, overfishing, pollution, all those things. And ultimately, it's this lack of willpower, lack of knowledge, some very powerful interests that are able to distort actual truths to influence people to not step up and not solve these problems that really, I think, is it's both a challenge and an opportunity. So there is that individual level and that idea that from the base of you know being a kid, are they gonna be you know making decisions at the G20 anytime soon? No, but then really scaling that upwards to the people who do have the power to make a difference. Okay, you don't care about the environment for its own sake, you don't care about biodiversity. The loss of coral reefs among all of these other ecosystems is an economic issue. It's a public health issue. It's a national security issue. You're worried about refugees? There's a billion people who rely on coral reefs to feed their families and pay the bills. Where are they gonna go if their homes are underwater and there's no food or jobs? So having that ability to communicate to people just how much this matters to humanity's ability to survive and thrive, I think still could be a game changer for actually getting us to step up and act to solve for these issues. Coral reefs connect so many facets of humanity and society, and that matters to humanity's ability to thrive and survive. If you want to see something uplifting, Taisha recommends checking out the YouTube videos of their coral spawning event. They make babies after the full moon. It's pretty wild and weird. That's all for our show today. 
If you like this episode, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And let us know what you think is the next biggest world-changing idea. World-Changing Ideas is produced by Avery Miles. Mixing and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Audio supervision by Joshua Christensen. Editorial oversight from Deputy Editor Kate Davis and Senior VP of Entertainment Scott Meebus. Sugar.